Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, that is JV3. And I feel like these two week breaks in between episodes are so long, even though they're they're probably not. I'm just exaggerating because I'm not working right now. So one shout out to um, parental leave. It's a, a blessing. I think everybody should have it because this notion of uh, not having to go to work, but still getting paid is is nice. Um, if this is what passive income looks like, I need to find it ASAP. This week's episode is all about community. And if you're new here, you haven't listened to the podcast before, then you should learn quickly that community is something that is very important to me. And, and it's, to me, an, an, a living thing. Um, I think we've moved beyond the traditional definition of a, a geographic location or proximity among individuals. And community is really where people's um, passions align. And so you don't necessarily have to be neighbors to be community. If, if we have shared interests, if we have common goals or a common vision, perhaps for a space, therefore we are now community. And I want to take you all back to the summer of 2000 and I guess that would be nine. I was an undergrad at Michigan State University and I was interning at the Allen Neighborhood Center, which is on the east side of Lansing. And this was my introduction to community engagement and community outreach work. And if you've also, if you're new here, I, I do distinguish the difference between community engagement and community outreach. I was doing a lot more outreach work, letting individuals in the community know about the institution that I was a part of, the services that we offered, and less of the querying of community needs in the sense that we were not pulling community together in a meaningful way at that time. What we learned in having our conversations with people, letting them know about the services that we offered, was that there were specific needs around sustainability and self-sufficiency that, that people wanted to be able to provide for themselves. They wanted to be able to grow their own food. And if you want to check it out, the Allen Neighborhood Center has now for, for quite some time had a farmer's market that transformed into a full-blown farmer uh, entrepreneur experience. There's also the garden in a box where people learn to grow their own food. And it's, it's just a really exciting place. But it was there um, walking door to door, getting to know people's aspirations and the things that they were passionate about that really centered me with, hey, community matters. And regardless of what I do going forward, I have to have some role where I can say community has to be part of that conversation. So we fast forward now 13 years, I'm a bureaucrat, and I still feel the same way. I feel like as we're making decisions, especially policy and program decisions, we have to have the input and the insights of the people who are most likely gonna be affected by the problem. If you've ever read any of my writing, you know that community engagement is something that is, is near and dear to my heart because I feel like for far too long, We've made decisions without considering the people most impacted. And then we've spent the next 10 to 20 years trying to undo the decision that we shouldn't have made in the first place. Now, in thinking about community engagement and community outreach, there is a third tier or tool that I think we should often or we don't use as frequently as we should. 
And that is community organizing. That's the ability to to pull individuals together and, and sharing power for the purposes of getting a a thing completed or to accomplish a task or to fulfill some goal. And I've been grateful in a lot of the work that I've done in public health. It's been tangential or working in parallel with community organizers. So the things that we decide on the public health side or the things that we're looking to implement, there's community organizers who are saying, mm, no, that's not going to fly. Or, hey, you might want to consider these things. And so being able to now have an episode on community organizing. Speaking of, um, this is actually the last community of practice episode that I have recorded. So enjoy it while you can. It's, it's a good one. But being able to use community organizing as a tool for making decisions is something that I think goes under underappreciated. On today's episode, we have uh, good friends, Frank Romo and Theo Pride, who have worked together on a variety of projects around community mapping, community power, and using technology as a facilitator for making those decisions and, and mapping those things. And so without further ado, let me go ahead and introduce you all to Theo Pride and Frank Romo. Theo, you mind kicking us off? Yeah, thank you so much, James. Uh, I'm Theo Pride. Uh, at the current moment, I'm a community organizer with uh, Detroit People's Platform uh, located in Detroit, Michigan. Um, a little bit about my, my background before I go into what I do with DPP. Um, born and raised in Detroit. I grew up on the west side. West side. Um, west side, west, west, you know it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I grew up uh, in and around Brightmoor, that area. So, you know, I grew up uh, Finko, six miles, seven miles, those areas moved around. Um, went to Retford High School. It is a Myers right now. It was, you tore down uh, sometime after I, I graduated. Uh, but I went to Retford High School in Detroit. I played football there. Ended up getting a scholarship to uh, play football at a small college in Minnesota. And uh, uh, end up hurting my knee, um, and uh, that was kind of the end of my football career. But I had a good relationship with this this, this uh, sociology professor at uh, U of uh, at the at the college. His name was Solomon Gashaw. Um, he really introduced me to uh, kind of the world of sociology, uh, um, and and kind of put me on the path of of, of uh, you know being a better student, I guess you can say, right? And I started to. Uh, really dig into the field of sociology, started to explore it, um, and kind of pursued that uh, from 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 that point. End up getting a PhD in sociology. Uh, so my 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 background is really kind of rooted in academia. Um, I was actually a, a, a professor of sociology at uh, Oakland University for a little while, um, and um, really kind of the issue that I was dealing with in academia was this. So, you know, growing up in Detroit, right, growing up in the community that I grew up in, it was really a matter of, of looking at the problems around me, right, and at that stage trying to figure out solutions, but not, right, having an arsenal, right, of theory or, you know, practical, uh, uh, right, experience to kind of decipher and, and, and really kind of locate you know, the roots of those problems, right? When I went to school, right, I was 
exposed to, 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 to more explanations. And so I was better able to kind of explore those problems. But my issue was that I had this, these analytical frameworks, but it didn't seem to be touching the people. <laughs> Right, uh, and it was just kind of this issue of the ivory tower. I, I felt like I was stuck in the ivory towers, all of this amazing information, all of this amazing analysis, all of these potential right solutions, but they weren't matriculating to, or they weren't um, uh, kind of kind of right, right reaching the people. Uh, and so I started kind of explore different avenues. Um, and that, that's what led me to Detroit People's Platform. Right, and Detroit People's Platform is a community-based organization, um, and they focus on building grassroots, right, community power uh, in the city of Detroit uh, at the local level. But if a situation calls for it, certainly can extend out, right, um, and and um, uh, engage in other projects that require right a, a different type of political stance, and and so at DPP. Uh, it was it was really a great opportunity for me because I was able to take these ideas that I learned in academia um, and apply them and say, hmm, you know, Marxism, right? Uh, let's let's see how it works, uh, right? Critical race theory. Let's see how it works. Me as an organizer, I'm always trying to figure out, right, kind of the different scales of the problem um, and kind of bring my academic training, I guess, into the, in, into the process to see if, if, if the actual process of solution creation um, is meeting the problem itself, right? Um, and, 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 and to say that, right, you know, it, is, is all of this futile or, you, you know, like, are, are we really, uh, uh, making headway, right, um, um, in, in this engagement, in this organizing, and whatever we do. Uh, so, you know, that's a little bit of background about me. Um, and I guess what I want to highlight is, is really me coming from academia to, to community organizing, and that's really my experience. So you bring a few different lenses that I'm, I'm excited to, to pick apart. And so over to you, Frank, let us know a little bit about yourself. Hey everybody, uh, my name is Frank Romo. I am originally from Los Angeles, California. I grew up in East LA, Los Angeles. Just um, went, grew up in East LA, went to high school in downtown LA, then went to college on the west side of LA. So, you know, LA is a very large place. And in doing that, kind of traveling around, going from city to city, having friends all over the city, you know, it was able, I was able to see very quickly how diverse and um, difficult it was in certain neighborhoods and certain communities. And it was, it was really apparent really early on for me uh, why communities in Los Angeles didn't have access to resources or didn't have access to food or had poor air quality in their neighborhoods. It was really apparent, you know, it came down to race, income, a lot of the things that we um, kind of are now more in the rhetoric of what we talk about when we talk about social justice, activism, et cetera. But, you know, while I was growing up, I kind of felt that, understood that. And so early on in my career here in LA, I became a community organizer. And what that meant for me, I focused a lot on labor organizing. So <clears throat> that was uh, identifying locations or communities that were being oftentimes exploited by their employers 
and fighting for additional rights, additional wages, making sure employees had protections against sexual harassment, against uh, wage theft and things like that. So that's really what's um, really in my heart. I do a lot of that because I believe that, um, you know, in this society that we live in that, you know, labor is very important to making sure somebody has the, can establish the lifestyle that they want, can protect their health, can protect their family and a lot of those things. And in doing that, I got started in community organizing and then I studied a lot of uh, urban planning as well, city planning. So for me, uh, how I kind of got here is uh, having my background in labor organizing, combining it with some of the city planning uh, tool sets, which is like, you know, zoning, learning how, that's how I learned GIS, learning a lot of different uh, tools as to how our cities and neighborhoods got to the way that they are and how certain communities were disenfranchised through the systematic, you know, oppression of those communities through urban planning, through politics, through labor, through all those things. So for me, I always saw community organizing as one aspect of how we can fight to support communities and get better better access to groceries, better access to wages, et cetera. And then you add on top of that, the urban planning started to see things a little bit differently from a power perspective in terms of the political and the city side of things. And I still noticed that there was still not a lot of uh, ability for our communities to gain some ground there. And so that's when I started to get into the technology, learned uh, geographic information systems. I founded my own company, Romo GIS Enterprises. And since that foundation of that company, what we really do focus on is supporting community organizations like the Detroit People's Platform, nonprofit organizations, educational organizations to advance them in any way we see fit, where sometimes that's building a database, Sometimes that's training folks in community organizing skills. Sometimes that's training folks in how to use technology to harness it so that they can run a better community organizing campaign so they can have the data in front of them so they can help um, organize around that and bring that to their uh, represented officials and try to utilize the technology and the data to make that case for them. One of the things when I was growing up I really understood is that we could organize, we could educate, but at the end of the day, there was a lot of times somebody with power at the top who had to make that decision, sign off on that piece of paper to kind of make things kind of move in our favor. And so for me, what I try to do in my, uh, in my profession is to bring a lot of those pieces together and say, all right, we can, let's have the organizing prong. Let's have the educational piece where we're educating the community. Let's have the technology piece. And let's put that all together and let's go attack this problem from a comprehensive standpoint so we can try to make the greatest impact in the community. And so that's what we do in our um, work at Roma GIS. And uh, I'm excited to tell you more about like what we do with Detroit People's Platform in particular to get us to that next step. Now, I'm, I'm really excited to, to have this conversation. One, because I feel like it brings all of my worlds together. Being from the West Side of Detroit, graduating from USC, like th this is a match made in heaven. So I'm really ready to, to dig into it. And speaking of Brightmore and Refer, right? So this has no place in the podcast whatsoever, but there was this liquor store on Six Mile, just past Grand River, I think it was called Princess. They had some of the best pizza in Detroit, random liquor store pizza. And people don't know what that means when I talk to other folks, like their liquor stores don't sell pizza. I'm like, <laughs> then you need to shut it down. But no, sorry. I, I was That's great. I, I, I know I know exactly the liquor store you talk about and they did have bomb pizza. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so centering today's conversation, 
what exactly is community organizer for people who are not exactly in this space or do this kind of work? How could you define it really quickly? Um, for me, community organizing, if, if, if I had to put it in really simple terms, community organizer organizing is people power. And it's, it's, it's a few levels to what I mean by people power. In one way, community organizing is the way in which people come together, right? They connect together and they show up in the space in sheer number. And the, the quantity, right? The number of people you have in the space, right? In solidarity, collectively working together, right? Um, on a particular issue for a particular issue is a right exertion of power. It's a demonstration of power. Right, and that power is then used to um, attack a political issue, right? Transform social conditions, what have you, whatever the issue is, right? Change one's work environment, working conditions, better better wages, and so forth. The other way in which I understand people power, right, in the context of organizing, is not necessarily the sheer number of people you show up with in the space. It is the social relationships, it's the social interactions themselves and the dynamism that creates. And what I mean by that, it is that, right, two people, right, is better than one per person doing the job, right? So it is the power that you create by working together, right? So me, you, and Frank, we can get together and we can attack an issue and the three of us dynamically right, can analyze it, feed off each other, right, um, and um, co collectively come up with uh, solutions and ideas and so forth, right? That is the, the dynamism that, that I'm talking about. Um, and so when, when I'm thinking about bringing people together, I'm thinking about the collective, right, power that you create, not only in sheer numbers, but the collective power that you create in forming solutions, right? Creating leadership, reimagining different spaces, right? Um, coming up with political strategies and so forth. Um, so, so, you know, when I think about community organizing, right? Like I said, it's, it's the collective, but then the other part of it is, it is not simply just coming together, Right, that that becomes the organizing part. Right, right. How do we bring people together? How do we create that people power situation, so to speak? But then the last leg of community organizing for me is always what is the issue, right? What is, what is the issue that we intend to focus on? What is the issue that we intend to right um, uh, attack? Right, and that issue becomes the impetus. It becomes kind of the central. Uh, will right uh, the 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 piece by which people come into the space collectively, right? It is the commonality. The issue becomes the 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 the, the cog of commonality that brings people together. That then um, gives them the um, right motivation, if you will, right, to come together to create that collective kind of. Uh, uh, of people power, um, as I said. You heard a lot from Theo there about power. I think that's for me, that's what community uh, agreed. Uh, community organizing is about power. It's about collectively redistributing the power from, you know, 
those with it who are usually um, there is usually this uh, main issue that we're trying to attack. And in order to get the community as a whole to attack it, we have to educate, we have to organize, and then we have to mobilize. And education for me is always the biggest part because we can teach about how you know we might go about introducing cleaner cleaner air or better food or better produce into the neighborhood and folks have these ideas and as theo said we collectively get together kind of spitball talk about these ideas and then we create a plan and once we create a plan we assign people roles and we try to um identify our leaders in the organization and try to give everybody a role to say hey you're gonna go knock on doors you're gonna go talk to you know the grocery stores you're gonna go uh put a, a pamphlet together for the politicians and we take this comprehensive approach to try to attack this issue so that we can improve our community at, at its core i think community organizing is trying to redistribute the power back to the community as theo said people power and being able to utilize that power for social good and for change to hopefully make the community more livable make folks there feel safer make them feel more comfortable and make them feel uh, take ownership of that community and of that problem of that issue rather than letting whatever the issue is take control of the community we try to flip it on its head and say no we're going to take control of this we're going to make this change and um, for me at its core community organizing is also about empowerment and it's not just empowerment at the community level because you cannot have empowerment at the community level without having it at the individual level so it's about also empowering individuals to become stronger leaders to become more critical thinkers and to try to uh, take that ownership and that initiative to make change in their community. So that's one of the biggest parts about it for me is um, trying to empower others and seeing how that power grows when we're collectively together. My next question, I feel like we, we started to answer it, but it's really about when do we employ community organizing as a strategy, right? Like it, it sounds like it fits for just about anything there's some issue in the community that needs to be discussed to, to be unpacked. Is there a, a right and a wrong time to use community organizing? Hmm. So for me, that's actually a very um, important question for a lot of reasons. Um, and some of it has to do with my kind of academic training, right? Uh, so when I was in academia, right, um, quite honestly, I fell in love with Marxism, right? And if you know anything about Marxism, it's like a hundred strands of Marxism. Um, I can't say where I'm really at. I just know like somebody like Franz Fanon or, uh, you know, CLR James are big influences on my kind of Marxian thinking. But um, in, in, in Marxism, right, the, the idea of social change, and, and right, I brought up the idea of people power, right? And so if if the working class, right, is that kind of engine of people power, right, the working class then overturns, right, the, 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 the current kind of social order and the social relationships, capitalist social relationships and so forth, right, that becomes kind of the general understanding of social transformation uh, in the context of capitalism. But how, how do you actually, how does the working class actually reach the point of consciousness or mobilization or solidarity to do that feat? Right. So there's two ideas, right? It can come from the bottom, it can come from the top, right? And this is not exclusive to Marxism, right? This is just right, people have kind of battled with these ideas for a long time, um, before and after Marx. Um, but right, so 
where 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 is the where is the engine of change starting is it organically bubbling up from the people and their experiences or to use kind of a, a marxian term is it a vanguard group who then understands social justice in a certain type of way right and they intend to go in with a set of ideas and agendas not necessarily impose those a, a, a agendas but um, certainly structure the social change in the image of that, that, that organization or, or, or those, those people kind of intervening, um, kind of the Saul Alinsky model of, of organizing, right? We have, we, the organization starts with the political idea and, and then we get the people to be a part of our right campaign. Um, for me, it, 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 it depends, but I'm, but, in terms of the philosophy of Detroit People's Platform, and largely my, my philosophy, I believe it should start with the people, right? I believe that when when those when those strategies need to be employed is when the people employ them, right? My job as an organizer is to notice that moment and to say, "Hey, I'm here to help," right? I'm here to I'm here to facilitate. I'm here to connect. I'm here to do what the people in the community need me to do, right? To create that people power, right? To create that engine of social change that's necessary to attack the community issue, the political issue, the economic issue, whatever the issue that uh, the community has identified um, as, as problematic. Um, so, right, kind of, I, I don't know if that really gets to the question, uh, but the other thing that I will say is that of course, like when 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 community organizing works best, right? And, and Frank kind of touched on this is right. There there has to be an issue, and the, the issue has to be compelling, right? If the issue is not compelling, people won't feel motivated um, to give the blood, the sweat, and the tears, and the time, and the energy, because it is hard. It is hard work, challenging power, speaking truth to power, and so forth. So it has to be a compelling issue, and it has to be an issue that uh, that the community sees as necessary and uh, uh, important. Man, I love it. That was that was good. Man. We had a little class right there we talked about. And just for, for like some of the listeners, I think it's important to acknowledge, like, you know, some of the key figures he's talking about right definitely informed by marxist theory because of the uh, capitalist system that we're in he talked about Saul Alinsky who was an organizer in Chicago a great organizer one of the organizers that I really look up to as being Mexican-American being from California someone like Cesar Chavez mm -hmm. someone like Dolores Huerta who worked with the United Farm Workers and you know you can see folks in different arenas using community organizing and again for me I was attracted to it I would say it's probably like a subset or kind of a brother or sister to it is like labor organizing where you have a very mm -hmm. specific issue, which is uh, focused on labor and how much people are making, how they're being exploited by the capitalist system, et cetera. But community organizing, to answer your question, James, about when is it appropriate to be used? I think as uh, Theo mentioned, when there is a problem that kind of touches everyone, you know, they want to put a highway through your neighborhood. Everybody's going to be up in arms being saying, hey, what's going on? We need to talk to each other. We need to talk. We can't let this happen. Or, or you know, a school's getting closed down. 
everybody in the neighborhood is going to be like, what's going on? We need to, we need to talk to each other. So it's really just that natural reaction of folks trying to uh, uh, change something that maybe they feel like these outside forces are trying to impose upon them. And we see that a lot of times in our communities. But I also want to acknowledge that there's also, unfortunately, that's, unfortunately, many of our communities, black and brown communities, have been forced to be in that reactionary standpoint. But I think there's also an important opportunity and uh, responsibility on our part to showcase that we can do it in a more affirmative way as well, in a uh, asset-based model rather than a deficit-based model where we're saying, hey, look, we have good resources. Our schools are doing well. We have good neighborhood community fabric. Everybody talks to each other. We tell each other how to, you know, where, where to support the local the local grocery store, where to support the local sports team or whatever, you start to see some of these things working and functioning in a community. And I think that's where my urban planning background comes in. And when okay. you see those things working and functioning in the community, we need to view those as assets and we can org organize around those just as much any problem in our neighborhood and utilize those to gain more power, right? That snowball effect of once we have a few things kind of going on, we've got our key stakeholders, and we got folks who are contributing every day to the community we need to work with those leaders to continue to make sure that we're stronger and stronger together and for me community organizing is best employed um, not as a singular or solitary solution and i think that's where i come in with my technological standpoint to say hey if you need support in running your campaign maybe if you utilize this technology rather than doing it on paper, it can save you time, it can save resources, it can help structure the data better. We can start to see that long-term vision of how we can impact the community through the technology because I think community organizing is a great tool. But one of the things when I was organizing and working my butt off here in LA is that we can organize and we can have a lot of the people power, but a lot of the times what it comes down to, there's still some decision makers at the end of the day sitting on the other side of the table who have to sign a bill, who have to approve that you got all these signatures and are going to not put, um, you know, a waste plant in your neighborhood now, whatever it may be, there is somebody at the end of the day because of that power who has to sign off on it. And that's why for me, community organizing is a great tool, but it's only one of many that we as organizers should have in our belt to try to attack these problems. And that's where Romo GIS and the Detroit People's Platform kind of came together to merge that community organizing, that community strength that they have, along with the technical expertise and the community background that we have to push forward to great to make greater strides in whatever progress, uh, excuse me, in whatever project they were trying to accomplish. I just want to put out there, um, you know, typically I'm in that seat on the other side of the table, right, as, as a decision maker in, in state government. And there's many times where there's, there's like this conflict of like, we don't, we're not ready to bring community in, or we don't want to bring up bring in community because we don't know what they're going to tell us. And I'm I'm always pushing back on that notion because we could spend millions upon millions of dollars on the wrong thing, and we haven't taken the time to actually hear what the issue is from community because it's easy for us to assume a problem, right? Like it's easy for us to to guess at we we need to address this, and it's like, well, actually, no that's a symptom of a bigger problem. Like let's, right. let's pull together all of our departments and say, hey, this particular community is being challenged by all of these things. How can we work together to figure it out? And I, I see community organizers as like the conduit, right? Like 
we know we have our finger on the pulse of this situation. We know exactly what's going on. We have the data. We have quantitative, qualitative. We'll map it out for you, like all of those things. And there's still just this resistance or hesitance, I'll, I'll use that word, of really digging in and leaning toward how can community best assist us so we can better assist them. The second thing that I want to highlight there is, you know, even being that decision maker, I still have my, my macro social worker roots. So Rules for Radicals comes out from time to time just to make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm shaking the, the table a little bit. And I always lean back on keep the pressure on, right? Like I can't let that go because we, it's easy for us to rest on our laurels. Our grant runs out and we say, hey, we're done here. No, no, we, we may not have even made a dent in the situation. How do we continue to do the, the thing that we set out to do when we first apply for these grants to make sure that community can sustain things? And that's something I've always pushed is like, you know, working on grants and they say, oh, what's your sustainability plan? And my thing is, it's never been, it's up to the organization to sustain it. It's not, it's up to us to pour into the community so the community feels it is necessary to sustain it. And, and folks look at me like, that's madness. And I'm like, is it really though? Is it? <laughs> because right. People, you know, CEOs turn over, missions change, people leave, community's still gonna be there. And so if we take the one thing that's actually gonna stick around and we give them the resources to make things happen, just imagine, right, just imagine. And so I think this segues greatly into my, my next question. And I'm gonna start with you, Frank, because Theo made the quote ever so elegant, community organizing is people power. So let's talk about the role of power in organizing. How is it articulated and how is it shared? So the role of power in organizing, I think that's where you, I love what you're talking about, about making sure that there is some kind of sustainability plan, right? Because you're right, we run a lot on these grants and these projects where, all right, it's out of funding, right? We got to move on. Sorry, community. There's no more funds. We, we showed that we cared about this issue for X amount of months, and now we're going to move on. And unfortunately, when working with community members, they're, they're, if they work with municipalities or other organizations who have that perspective, it's really easy to get jaded and be like, hey, these guys aren't really interested in helping us. They're just here to kind of like, you know, maybe do a little bit of work and then they kind of move on and there's not much left for us as the community. And so, you know, the, the, along with that power, I think we have to also talk about this idea of trust. And uh, because without talking about that, um, it, it's, it's kind of a moot point. I think it's really important for me as a community organizer to build trust with the folks that I'm working with because the actual sustainability plan is moving each of those individuals forward one step so that they can be better representatives and advocates for themselves and for their communities. Because you're right, the money is gonna run out. The projects are gonna end. And the one thing that is gonna stay is the community. So whatever I try to do in my work is try to, as I said before, redistribute that power. The community has that power. I think sometimes it's just about waking them up and being like, hey, y'all, you got this. Like, we just gotta, we gotta you know, waking that sleeping giant up and saying, hey, we got this, we can, we can do this. We can utilize this technology. We can go knock on these doors. We can have a plan. And I think for me, the, the number one thing is <clears throat> moving everyone in the community one step forward. Now, one person that might mean pushing them so that they can be strong enough to present in a, in a public forum. 
another person that might be pushing them outside their comfort zone so they can go do some uh, house visits or, or knocking on doors or canvassing. Another person that might be teaching them how to use the technology so they can support the organization long term. And so whatever that power distribution looks like, whatever that empowerment model looks like, for me, it's always about how do we move this person right in front of me that I'm working with right now one step forward? And how do I best understand how to do that so that they can, when I leave as an organizer, as the technician, when I leave, we want this to be sustainable. And the way we do that is to help the community think more critically about these issues, put those, uh, connect those dots because the community is living it every day, right? So I'm not, as Theo said, I'm not gonna come in and tell them, hey, we should do this, we should do that. The community has the answers to the issues that they're facing. It's about listening and facilitating and collaborating and empowering because sometimes they may know how to solve the problem, but sometimes just like all of us, they may think, hey, I'm not sure I'm the right person for the job. And my job as the organizer is to say, no, you got this. You are the exact right person for the job. If you need help, I'm here to support you in whatever capacity you might need. And then the hope is that as I work to empower that individual, they go work to empower three more individuals. And those three individuals go work to empower five more individuals. And now we have a community that is building power, is able to support one another, and is not afraid to lean on each other, and is really open to supporting and giving back and saying, hey, man, I got you. Don't worry about it. Or when you have that moment of, of weakness that we all you know, have, not sure I can do it. It's really nice to have a partner there say, hey, yeah, you can. You got this. Remember you had that last time. You, you handled it. And so it's just really about that trust again, right? That trust and that power, I think, go hand in hand. Yeah, for me, I, I agree with everything uh, Frank just said. Um, but also, too, I, I would add that um, how power is manifested and how it is articulated depends on the issue, right? It depends on the political context. It depends on the socioeconomic context that people find themselves embedded in. Um, like, for example, if we are talking about organizing um, in terms of right the workspace um, and you have workers um, and the issue is, yo, you know, we have poverty wages uh, and we want to change that. First one must understand the landscape, the context. What are the mechanisms to power? How do you leverage that power to get the change that you, that, that, that you need? Well, it is then withholding work collectively, right? If we withhold work collectively, then we understand that we stop things at the point of production because we are the things that make the profit monster go. Um, and, and now you are able to leverage um, uh, power in a certain type of way, right? So is, is one is understanding the context. It's very different than, let's say, in the community where you have um, a neighborhood and they are economically disenfranchised and here comes a big developer and he wants to set up a condo um, and displace a bunch of people where, well, well, what is the, what, what power do those people in that neighborhood have? Well, one, one, one mechanism of power is uh, if you look at policies, perhaps with development, there are certain um, there are certain mandates to say developers must get the consent of the community Right, uh, that is one way in which community can come together around that and say, hey, we don't consent to that. 
Uh, another way is to say that we are constituents, right, in this uh, political process. Um, we have city council people, we have other elected officials. Uh, we can then organize as electorate, right, say we withhold our vote, right, collectively in a certain type of way, right, if you don't meet these kind of political demands, right. So it's about understanding kind of the power landscape, right, and how you understand collectively how working together builds power for you. Um, the other thing too is, so how does it begin to, um, how does it begin to expand? How does it begin to, you know, be built and how does it begin to proliferate? Really, it depends on wins, <laughs> um, in my experience. That's the way in which the, the power is expanded, how it is articulated, how it is shared from the next person to the next person. If people don't get wins, um, and this is just the honest truth. If people don't get wins, the boat falls apart. Um, but once you, even if it's incremental wins, right, and you can identify and illuminate those wins, like, yo, we, we, they built the condo, but, and a few people were displaced, but guess what, right? We got the developers to then uh, put, right, you, you know, 20% affordable housing, right, in the unit, yeah, 80% AMI, area median income. And, or, you, you know, we got the developer to put a million dollars into this community trust fund or something like that. Yes, it's a negotiation, but it's something that the community, right, um, has to decide, is this what we'll take or do we wanna fight? And if it's a community win and the community feels like it's a win, it's a win. And if you're gonna point to those wins, right, people can say, okay, this is worth my time. Right. This is this is something that right can be right effective. Right. People want to be a part of effective kind of process of change. Um, so but once you get those wins, right, then you begin to build something really, really strong. And that is when, right, and in my experience, that's when power really takes notice, right? Once you begin to write as a small group, begin to proliferate and expand out and they get bigger, you get this win. And now, right, power says, you know what, now we have to. Right now we have to, you know, change the game up. Now we have to um, take more serious measures to thwart power in these type of ways. And it makes it harder for the power to be articulated and the power to be shared. But that becomes the process of win, right? Um, uh, you, you know, kind of thwart that win, right? Figure out other strategies and keep it going. And so realizing that that power is expressed in a few different ways, and I, I feel like this is going to blend a few different pieces here. Let's talk about mapping power and, and mapping just as a, as a whole. So, Frank, I'm, I'm interested in hearing about the role that GIS played and technology plays in this effort. And really, what difference does it make, right? Like being able to use this data, who do we go out to convince and say, hey, we've got evidence on why we need to make these decisions? Right. For, for me, uh, mapping in terms of geographic mapping is really uh, important, but even from a community organizing aspect, like just that word mapping, you know, one of the first things we do is do a stakeholder analysis or, or we map mm -hmm. out who all the stakeholders are, who are the key people with power. And I think that map, that's the first map, right? And like, that's the very first map of like, all right, we want to get something changed in our community. Who are the representatives, the leaders that we need to worry about. And you kind of map it out and you say, okay, we have this council person. Okay, we have an ally on the board over here and we have another ally in a nonprofit organization here. 
And in that initial mapping that we've done so many times on the walls of community organizing rooms, like on big post-it notes, drawing all, <laughs> Theo knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> you too, James, James, you all both know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, we got all the post-it notes up on the wall. We're writing on the wall saying, okay, this person is uh, has been in the seat for a few years. They've been supportive in the past few years. And that, that moment of mapping that uh, stakeholder analysis is really key to understanding where you're going to go and where the pressure points are for that power. You know, where are the access points for you as a community? So in that same regard, as we move into the digital space, mapping in terms of a geographic sense, I think is really important because so much of the data about our communities is uh, hidden from us. So much of the data about our communities is obfuscated, whether that's uh, purposefully or because you know the systems aren't in place to share that data, and you know for me that those two things are one and the same. Uh, but you know it can be oh well we don't have enough resources at the city or, or at this organization to to share that data. Well, that's because the city or that organization has deemed that that data isn't as important. And you know whenever inherently in data and in geographic mapping there are power dynamics. And so when we're talking about data about my community. What is the, you know, parts per square million of, you know, X amount of toxin that we're breathing in? What is the uh, number of grocery stores that sell fresh produce in my neighborhood in the one mile radius? You know, we've all heard about food deserts, redlining, um, those kind of things happen on a geographic basis where folks um, in power have said, we're not going to invest in these neighborhoods because they are lower income, because they are people of color, we have chosen not to invest in those neighborhoods. And in my perspective, if those in power are using mapping to disenfranchise our communities, if we are not using that same tool to try to empower our communities, then we're not even playing the same game. And that's really what it comes down to for me is we need to make sure that we understand that we're going into this technical age, this geographic age. And if we're not using those tools to empower our, our community members and to fight back, we best best believe that they're being used to used against us to disenfranchise us. And if we don't even if we don't understand them, then we're at a disadvantage. But in, in it being able to utilize them and harness them and be able to present our own narrative and present our own truth alongside with our stories and our experiences, now we've become a lot stronger. And again, it's about this comprehensive model of organizing where the data and the mapping are just an, another asset to add to the, the lived experiences and the reality that's actually going on in, in our neighborhoods. And it, because it's really easy for a person who is in power to sit up there and listen to the stories of the community about someone being displaced or about somebody not having access to transit or healthy food and to say, oh, well, that is too bad and I'm sorry for your community. But when you have those experiences along with data, along with uh, additional support from other organizations, it becomes a lot harder for that person in power to ignore that because as Theo said, the, the, the roar becomes more resounding and people become louder and the power becomes stronger. And again, it, it has this kind of snowball effect. So for me, the mapping and the technology is just another tool that as we move into this digital age, I believe really needs to be harnessed by communities so that we can continue to uh, protect ourselves and be able to change the narrative and frame the narrative from our perspectives.
if you know for me mapping both power mapping and right socio-spatial mapping or geographical mapping right is a kind of it's a demystifying process right it's an illuminating process um i think that a lot of times when we think about the world that we live in especially when we think about kind of oppressive structures um we think about it as like these tight entities that exist above us <laughs> Um, and we don't realize that ultimately those institutions and those entities are comprised of a bunch of social relationships, right? It's a bunch of social relationships and a bunch of people, right? People are making those decisions. And for me, the power mapping is always demystifying in the way in which it says power is just these people, right? It's that guy over there making this decision. It's that guy over here is making this decision. It's not this, right, supreme force that right is um you know ambiguous and and right hard to conceptualize and, and identify no it's right it's it's the you know the ceo of right that uh economic development corporation right it is right the city council members right it's the mayor it's his administration it's the planning commission right it's the these neighborhood groups and so forth um and so power mapping allows the community to comprehensively zoom out, right, and see a whole landscape of social relationships and people in power and people making decisions. And it begins to connect the dots for them in terms of looking at their issues, right, the multitude of issues and say, those issues emerge and they manifest because these people made these decisions, right? And if you don't want these things to happen, right, then, right, identify these people, right, to make certain changes, right? Remove this person so he can make a, 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 a different decision, if you will. Um, in terms of the geographic mapping, it's the same thing, right? It is, so we, we exist in terms of our everyday experiences on, on a micro level. We're dealing with this guy at the liquor store, we're dealing with the people in our neighborhood and so forth. We don't experience, right, the macro, <laughs> right? We can only conceptualize the macro. We don't, we don't experience the whole city of Detroit. We experience right macro personal relationships at certain times and spaces in Detroit. Um, and so if we're understanding oppression or if we're thinking about oppression, right, we may begin to kind of localize it and understand it anecdotally from our kind of lived experience, but at a very personal level, right? The geographic mapping allows us to zoom out and give people a visual, right? That they can embed themselves in. You're here, right? And look at all of this development, right? That is extracting this much money, right? From, uh, you, you know, certain public resources, right? And public assets uh, that has led to the closing of these many libraries, right? Throughout the city. Right, so it it, it 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 gives them this 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 macro level of 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 process, right? That they don't experience on the day to day, so they can kind of embed it into their analysis or incorporate it into their analysis and better understand the problem, right? And so both of those things to me is always about better understanding the problem, analyzing the problem, so you can devise uh, a, a, a effective solutions.
And so let's get specific, right? So I, I want to hear about the work that you all did together, kind of, you know, what was the problem that you were looking to address? What were some of the lessons learned? Um, what could be adjusted for next time? We, you know, we had a bunch of things. I think we first started off thinking about like, yo, you know, what data is out there um, and how can that data help us with all of our campaigns? Because at DPP, we look at housing, we look at transit justice, we look at equitable development, we look at racial justice, a bunch of things going on. Um, we, we kind of, not necessarily settled, but it kind of just kind of emerged um, uh, at a time during COVID and all of the crisis that was happening, right? Detroit was receiving uh, a, a bunch of public monies, federal monies, uh, and um, the ARPA, right? ARPA money, the American Rescue Plan um, Act, right? Had uh, basically uh, issued $800 million to Detroit, right? For aid. Um, and at the time, DPP, we were looking at one, budget justice, the way in which public officials were spending, right, Detroiters' money on development, um, certain other things, but spending it in a way that did not reflect, right, racial justice and, and economic justice, no equity, right? Uh, 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 the budget reflected, right, the needs of wealthy investors and corporations and not everyday majority Black Detroit. So that was an issue for us. The other thing is that, right, all of this development that was transpiring uh, you know, in Midtown, downtown Detroit, and other parts of Detroit. But that development, of course, was linked to, right, um, the prosperity, right, of outside investors and developers and not longtime residents. Um, and so we were looking at the landscape in totality, right, and trying to figure out how can we tell a story um, and identify the ways in which this kind of process of extraction and um, inequality and, and, and uh, uh, um, inequity is, is, is going down. Um, and uh, we began to work with Romo GIS, right? Got a bunch of data um, and decided to begin to map one, developments across Detroit. So particularly, right, the way in which tax increment financing, right, is used to jumpstart developments, right, throughout the city. Um, and so we were tracking, right, all of the TIF developments, right? And TIF is, right, simply a tax abatement program that then caps, right, property value at a certain level, right, and then projects the increase in property taxes over the course of time and gifts, <laughs> right, that increase, that incremental increase, right, and property value uh, increase, right, to the developer. Um, and what does that do, right? That then says that that money would have went into the public coffers. It doesn't go to libraries. It doesn't go to schools. It doesn't go to parks. It doesn't go to rec, right? It goes to into the pocket of the developer. So we were tracking these developments all across, right, the city. Uh, and we began to map those things with the help of Romo GIS. Another thing we began to look at were um, Detroit in 2014 had started what they called the Strategic Neighborhood Fund, right? And what they would 
do essentially do is identify certain corridors, certain neighborhood that would be specifically right targeted for special development. Um, and so they will pour money into these neighborhoods, right, to improve the corridor, right, to attract investment, right, to redevelop these areas. The first kind of initial go around in 2014, I, I, I think it was something like 40 million they had raised uh, in donations and grants and so forth. Uh, but then in 2018, they expanded the, the amount of neighborhoods that would be designated strategic neighborhoods to, I think, I, I want to say, I, I want to say eight. Um, I may be wrong about that, but they increased the, the, the amount of money to about 130 million. So it's about seven to eight strategic neighborhoods, right, specifically targeted, right, for special development across Detroit. So what would these neighborhoods be doing, right? Money will be going into these neighborhoods, but then also to, uh, with the help of mapping, we found that there were a bunch of special tax abatement zones all across the city right, economic development zones and so forth that allow developers to um, uh, basically uh, acquire other tax benefits and so forth. And when we began to map these things, right, um, with GIS, we began to see a lot of overlap, right? So a lot of the TIFs, a lot of the strategic neighborhoods, a lot of the special tax abatement zones were all in the same neighborhoods. And essentially what that did was leave huge swaths of Detroit, right? All of the neighborhoods, right? In the crevices, right? Or, right, not within those strategic zones were basically, right, left behind. And we began to kind of frame it in that way, right? Left behind neighborhoods, right? And so the way in which we kind of framed it was that, right, money was specifically, right, being poured into these neighborhoods at the expense of other neighborhoods. This is the definition of an equitable, right, development, right? You pour money into certain neighborhoods, build them up, and you forget about the rest of the neighborhoods. Another thing that we began to do that was really, really pretty uh, cool, right, with the mapping is that we wanted to, right, of course, DPP, we try to look at things with a racial justice lens, lens and the economic justice lens. And we began to say, hmm, let's see where the affluent neighborhoods are. Let's see where, right, the, um, right, the heavily populated African-American neighborhoods are. And of course, Detroit is 80, 82% Black, so that's pretty much the, the, the whole city. But there are a few neighborhoods that are, are heavily populated, right, with white residents, right? And what we found was that those strategic neighborhoods, right, and those areas where the money was being poured in were overwhelmingly white and wealthy. Um, and so the way in which we can understand it in its totality, right, is the municipality, right, local government was funding, right, the development of already wealthy and also to white neighborhoods while ignoring, right, the economic, social, right, needs of poor Black communities, right? The, act, the absolute textbook the definition of inequitable, right, racially unjust development. Um, and so we decided to take all of this data, right, and put it into, right, uh, a story, right, app, right? And this allowed us to tell that story um, and also to provide um, the data, right, the visual data, right, to, um, um, to, to, to help tell that story. 
Um, and so, like I said, it was around the time of AR, the, the, the ARPA money, money coming out. And so what DPP, what we wanted to do is say, hey, Detroit has been doing this type of stuff, taking money, public monies and so forth, other monies pouring into these neighborhoods. What will they do with this $800 million, right? Right, and it was a time also too during right uh, political elections, um, and our strategy, right, our community strategy was to then educate people, right, about this inequity, um, and then hold public officials accountable, and then also to people running for public office, hold them accountable and see where they stood on these issues. Um, hopefully, to get people, new people in there that would then uh, support a more equitable, right, approach to development. Um, and so what we did was we took that data, specifically we took the story data, right, and we uh, tried to distribute it to community, uh, giving people access, right, to uh, the GIS a website so people can navigate it, uh, educate themselves, right, and be more informed about the process. Um, and then also to try to steer people to a, a, a lot of the, the, the uh, uh, election um, uh, events where candidates were and to use that data and use that knowledge and use that information, right, to challenge and question the elected officials. Um, and the hope was to then affect the election in a way where we got people who were elected officials, city council people specifically, and, and also to uh, a mayor, a new mayor, uh, that would be uh, take a more racially just, economically just approach to development. Um, and so, so you know, that's that's the way in which we use the organizing, right, or use the technology to support the organizing and drive a campaign, a very specific campaign with a very specific point, which was to then show this huge landscape. And like I talked about before, kind of de this demystifying, illuminating process, illuminate the whole process of inequitable development, show visually, right, in the map, how it is racially unjust, how it is economically unjust, right? How, right, it does not benefit everyday majority Black Detroiters, how it benefits, right, wealthy investors, right? And say that your, your city council people have, right, uh, supported this and voted for this, right, over the last four years. Let's make a change, right? And this is how we make a change. I love it, Theo. I think, um, I love it, Theo. Um, it makes me as, you know, a collaborator with Detroit People's Platform, just really proud and appreciative of the amazing folks at the Detroit People's Platform, because Theo, he says we built all these maps we built all these maps theo built a lot of the maps and his team built a lot of those maps and again you know i'm here i step in i set up the infrastructure for folks uh, we, we launched them a gis platform i went and gathered the data cleaned the data and then kind of showed them how to use the platform and since then theo and his team have been off creating maps and creating story maps and creating applications that they can share with the community and that he's presented at multiple community meetings and you know, uh, big meetings with city council folks and other folks who are decision makers, and that's that's where the real power comes from. Any one of those uh, campaigns that he talked about. Well, I also we also worked on you know, with the with the election coming up, we worked on registering voter registering voters, and we just had a little simple app that we created a little survey that 
allowed us to go collect data out in the field. You know, before it would be knocking on doors, filling out a piece of paper, and then, you know, that paper would have to get filled out somewhere else to get entered into a database. And you kind of go through that original process. So I stepped in and said, okay, what if we use this application? You can go out in the field, do it electronically. It'll stamp your, your geographic location. So we can know if folks are registered to vote on that block, how many of them are registered to vote on that block. And now it starts to be at a different layer to the process and it was really nice just to see all the different campaigns and the different ways that we were able to utilize the technology and for me again as the trainer my goal was to set them up with the infrastructure so they could be successful after being trained and being able to create maps run analysis like you know i thought theo they already had a a, a background in gis to some degree but I, I showed him some of the data showed him some of the ropes on how to build some of the apps. And before you knew it, he had a whole story map built out that laid out exactly what he talked about, uh, about these strategic neighborhood funds being funded and majority of them being uh, majority white residents in those neighborhoods. And that's something that we would have never have seen if we didn't map it. So to his point, it is a demystification and in, in demystifying that process, where the money goes, how it gets chosen to go there, we then start to peel back this layer of what's actually going on and see what's going on under the hood and then be able to attack it and say, hey, why is this happening? We And you can't tell us that it's not. We have the data. And that's the thing with the community organizing and the technology working hand in hand. The community knows how, if they're being, if they're being uh, treated improperly, if they're not being, uh, you know, if they're being done dirty by city council or whomever it might be, Folks know that they can feel that, right? They can feel that in the city. They can wait. They can feel that in their neighborhood. They can feel that in their everyday experiences in life. And what we're trying to do with the mapping is bring that additional data point to again pair with that experience and say, look, we're not making this stuff up. We're what we really feel and experience on a daily basis is happening. And now we have data that proves what we're talking about. So that's where I think the real power comes in. And again, I just want to give real props. It's been real great working with the Detroit People's Platform. Uh, all of their folks are so uh, so intelligent and so ambitious and want to make a difference. And that's the kind of folks that we like to work with. We say, hey, we'll, we'll coach them up. We'll work together. We'll, we'll do any project you want to do. If we're trying to make an impact in the community and make things better, uh, Romo GIS is here for it. And the Detroit People's Platform is definitely one of the organizations that leads the way in, in doing in walking the walk and not just talking the talk. So part of, part of the question too was like, what have you learned in the whole process and so, and, and so forth? So one thing that I really, really learned from in, in the process and also too, a great thing that I learned from, from, from Frank was that you can have a bunch of fancy models. You can have some really precise um, and uh, awesome methodologies by which you extracted that data and built these models, right? But if the presentation of the data itself is not palatable, if it is not useful, right, and easy to use, if you will, for a community, right, it be, it, it's ineffective, right? Uh, it, it is, um, it is a, a process by which you create, um, uh, you, you know, uh, or, or you collect a lot of data and you collect a lot of useful data on, on the exterior, 
But if the, the community cannot use it, it cannot be put into motion, it cannot be put into action. So part of the process of taking the data and building these models that then help with community organizing campaigns is making sure that when you get the finished product, that the community can actually use it, understand it, and move it forward. Um, you know, and, and, and a lot of my work um, in academia uh, you know, that was kind of a part of my critique is that I would read academic articles or I would read certain books or I would, you know, go to certain conferences, right? And right, the 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 work would talk over people and not to people, right? Um, and in building a lot of the models, right, I I would I would show Frank and he would remind me. This, it's a lot going on here, right? Make, you got to remember people, right? Community people, they're going to be looking at this. How does it help them to identify the problems that they know exist, right? And how can they use that information, right? To kind of pursue, right? Political, right? Solutions and so forth. So I was always thinking about the use value, right? Of the data itself. As we prepare to wrap up, the thing that I'm, I'm most interested in, because I, I always like to go back to like the, the high level and thinking about, you know, systems, right? How do we use these insights on technology mapping of power and community organizing to, to change policy and systems, right? Like that's at the end of the day, we all know, like my listeners know that we have created oppressive systems, you know, systems rooted in white supremacy, systems rooted in sexism, the, the list goes on. How do we use technology and community organizing collectively as an additional tool in our toolkit for transforming and reimagining systems? That's that. I love it. That's a great question. That's I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> I, I really appreciate that question because um, in community organizing, I think what we do is we take this idea of there's an issue in the community, there is uh, an issue that needs to be solved. And we, we see that as a potential detriment to the community, no access to food, uh, to healthy food, no access to public transportation, toxic chemicals, et cetera, a poor drinking water. We take these, uh, I, these things that are deficits and impacting our community negatively, and we try to utilize the power around the community to turn that into a positive, right? It, it sounds odd, but we take that that experience that we all have, the negative experience and say, we're not gonna stand for this and we're gonna turn this into a positive by organizing, by building strength, by building each other up and by attacking this problem. And as Theo said, when you get those victories, it feels amazing because you're like, yes, we fought, we won, we got more of what we needed. And in that turning that perceived negative into a positive, is where the true power lies. And I will say that's the same thing with the technology. We know that technology now is being utilized against our communities and it has been through redlining, through um, food deserts, through placement of toxic facilities near our communities. We know that those site plannings didn't just happen. Oh, we're just gonna put it over here. No, um, those things were mapped out and they, are, they articulated that this community quote unquote, held less value. So we're gonna allow ourselves to not invest there. And those are our communities. And we of course see so much value in our communities and we don't want those things to happen. And so the technology is the same way where facial recognition, these kind of um, predictive policing things, these are things that are coming out that again are being used against our community. And we need to take the perceived negative 
and that that uh, perspective of them trying to disenfranchise our communities with these tools and flip it on its head and say, uh, -uh we're going to learn how to use this in a different way so that we can empower our community so we can fight back so we can understand how to play the game so that we can go into this new era of technology and organizing and recognize that in this new era of technology, you can't have community organizing without some sort of technical capacity. And it doesn't have to be high tech. You know, when I first started community organizing, I did work down in New Orleans after Katrina. I did work down uh, up in Chicago and I did work out in LA. And every time, what do we start off with? We're gonna go canvas, we pulled out a map. And we said, all right, you're going to go down this street. You're going to go down that street. That's still technology. Like at that point, it was it was a lower level. And I also did some organizing um, in New York after Hurricane Sandy. And after that, that was the first time that we used like GPS units to say, oh, this house needs diapers. This house needs insulin. And we put that point on the map. And it was at that moment in time for me that I saw, look, this new era requires us to understand how to utilize technology to make our community organizing efforts tenfold better. You know, if we have that theoretical standpoint and that strong uh, backing from theoretical, from the theoretical perspective, from the community perspective, from that perspective of wanting to build and support the community, if we have that perspective and that background, that's what is needed to make an impact on people and on the, on the larger issues. Now the technology just helps us advance that by giving us better tools, by providing uh, more resources, by allowing us to not spend as much time, um, you know, writing things on paper because we can now put it in a database that then we can utilize. That's going to make our cause even go further and be able to have a greater impact. So for me, it's about turning those perceived negatives or those those things that may be being utilized against our communities and flipping them on their head and saying we need to train and organize around these things because these are gonna be our tools for the next 50 to 100 years of organizing. And without them, we're we're gonna to start to fall behind. So for me, it's really about combining the two. And I think the more we go into the future, the more I see organizations like the Detroit People's Platform reaching out to us and saying, hey, can you help us set our infrastructure up? Can you help us figure out how to use this data? Because we know the data is out there, but we don't really know how to use it. And so folks in the community know that it's there and it should be utilized. So my role is trying to just bridge that gap so that we can all move together in, in a powerful way. Yeah, so, um, you, you know, for me, and, you know, I've learned a lot of this from, 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 from Frank and I've gave him a lot of praise throughout this whole episode uh, and he deserves it. But, but one thing that I really took away from my work with Romo GIS was that community organizing and specifically, right, GIS mapping go hand in hand, right? Um, and, right, political and systems change, to me, that, that, is, that is kind of not necessarily the intrinsic goal of community organizing, but it is, it is um, right, uh, you, you know, an uh, important goal, if you will. But the reason why, right, technology mapping, right, and community organizing go hand in hand is because community exists within a certain context as it relates to um, one's kind of uh, political reality, right? Because community is, is, is living in a particular space that, that, that then runs into contradiction to the way in which the system itself intends to use that space, 
right? So community is always embedded in space. Um, and the mapping, right, is a spatial tool. It allows, right, community and those existing in that space to see that space in different type of ways. Um, and as we think about systems, particularly the capitalist system, right, race, racist capitalism, racial capitalism, and so forth, um, the mapping for me allows for the illumination of contradictions and tensions, right, within that system that, that cannot be resolved, right, by the system itself, that has to be resolved by right, you know, either the community or, or right, some, some, some other kind of revolutionary, right, force. Um, and the way in which it does that is to say that, right, community is always thinking about the uses of, 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 of the space, right, that, right, you know, I want to live here, this, this street is, you, you know, I want my, my children to play on this street, I want to use that school, right, to better my life and so forth. Right, but the capitalist system is looking at the, the, the space as a commodity, right? The space is to be bought and sold for profit and not necessarily for the use and the well being of community, right? And, and the mapping allows, right, at least, right, for my organizing is to show that you want to use this school, right? The community want to use this space in, in, in these particular ways, but look at the way in which it is being used. It is being used as a thing uh, to make money, to make profit. That is right the core, the central objective of, of what is going on in terms of local government, but then also to right, a, a, allowing people to see a larger system at work, right? So holding uh, elected officials accountable absolutely for the role they play in the perpetuation and manifestation of these contradictions, but hopefully allowing people to see a larger system at work. So it is to say that as you begin to become illuminated, right, and educated and informed about these contradictions that exist, right, in the communities that we live in, in order to change them, right, you have to then change the system, right? For me, it is about actually ideologically, right, transforming people to pay attention to the systems and the processes at work that are at the root of the manifestation, the creation of the problems that they see in their community. I felt like, you know, mic drop moment, right? Like, I, I, I ain't got no. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. No, I agree. And you're right. Do you want to change the systems? You got to change the, the power structures. And it goes back to what we said earlier. I think in order to do that, you got to change the people, right? And you got to change yourself and you got to look to yourself and figure out how you can be a better leader and how you can inspire more people. And for me, that's what community organizing comes down to. And, you know, Theo and I, since day one, it's been so great working on this project because since day one, we've just been just great friends. Just like, hey, I see you, you see me. Like we're, we're, we're coming from the same perspective. And it's so great to come from the tech side, come from the community organizing side. And we're just right there in stride. And we, we, we are tapped into what the community is saying and what they're feeling because we grew, we grew up like that. We lived that. And so now it's our opportunity and our privilege to give back in that way and, you know, try to empower and inspire other folks. Absolutely. I'm going to say this too, is that technology and, and not just mapping, right? Data and technology itself is, 
maybe a strong word would be necessary, right, in social change. But I'm, I'm going to use that word. I think it's necessary for, right, effective social change, considering, right, the historical context that we exist in. Because we know that data and technology is so powerful that the opposition and power structures use data and technology, right, to reproduce, right, and sustain, right, their positionalities of power every day, um, right? And right, I read an article uh, maybe a couple of years ago, and it said that data had surpassed, maybe it was 2018, something like that, data has surpassed oil, right, as the most valuable asset in the world. Um, so it's the way in which multinational corporations, governments, right, wealthy capitalists, right, white supremacist organizations, they are, right, keenly aware of the way in which data and technology is used, right, um, to, 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 to then, right, keep their positionalities of power. And in order to kind of combat that, Right, we need tools as well. Community needs tools as well. And so we need to begin to understand how to counter and counteract, right, the use of technology and data in ways that oppress and, and uh, uh, marginalize our communities. And so this is the time that I, I set aside, right, for you all to talk about how you specifically can as assist others. This is like your time to shine. You can talk about, you know, your work. You know, people who want to come learn more. I mean, you. I feel like y'all just gave me a free class, right? Just on community organizing, technology, what it means to really use power, how to share power. How do people keep up with you all and just the things that you're doing? Well, for, for, for me, you can always uh, jump on, right? DetroitPeoplesPlatform.org. Um, I think we have a pretty good website. Um, it talks about the work that we do. Um, it also talks about the work that I do. You can always look up my work there. But other than that, um, I'm 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 in the streets. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm I'm in the streets organizing, and I'm I'm in the streets really grinding. I'm really doing this. Um, uh, I do a lot of my organizing right in Northwest Detroit, uh, mostly because I have relationships there, right? And organizing is about genuine authentic, right, relationships, right? People know, know when you fake, right? right. And, 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 and they'll play you, you know, like that, right? So you, you, you think you're playing them and they're going to play you. And for this thing to work, you need real, true, genuine, authentic solidarity. Um, so I do a lot of my work, right, in, in Northwest Detroit, Six Mile, Seven Mile, I'm on Finkel, uh, Evergreen, you know, I say Lasher because that's, you know, you know, it, where I'm from. We say it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's how you say it last year. Uh, but, you, you know, so um, a, a lot of times, right, when, when I'm in the street, I encounter people. I'm always talking about my work and I'm always looking for people who, uh, you know, may have a community issue and how I can assist, right, and how DPP can assist. Uh, so um, particularly, right, uh, in Northwest, we've been organizing around issues of the loss of, I wanna use the word public assets, things like our libraries, things like our, our schools, uh, right? Green spaces, parks, uh, recreational centers and so forth. Um, and what we really wanna do is bring light to the fact that Detroit has a very narrow, and not just Detroit, right? It's 
you know, it seems like our society as a whole in totality, we have a very, very narrow um, uh, and parochial, right, conceptualization and view of what constitutes growth, <laughs> right? Growth is always about condos and, uh, you know, high-rise apartments, right, economic development, profit gains, and so forth. Growth never right, in the context of white supremacist capitalism in, in, in the world that we live in, growth rarely, right, is envisioned and seen as people growth, right, the, the, the growth of people's, um, you know, happiness, uh, well-being, uh, uh, you know, feeling of safety, safeness, um, access to clean water, fresh fruits and vegetables, all of those type of things. Um, and so a lot of my organizing, what I try to do is connect the dots between the way in which, right, Detroit is obsessively, right, pursuing uh, these, this growth model um, and using public monies to do so. Um, and in the process, what that does, it, it lopsidedly, right, benefits developers while taking very, very important public monies away from everyday people, uh, people that I call my auntie, people that I call my cousin, people that I call family and friends uh, and loved ones. Um, and so, right, if, if, if you wanna jump in, if you wanna get involved in that fight, right, you can hit me up, uh, email Theo at DetroitPeople'sPlatform.org. Um, and uh, I'm always down for the fight. Yeah, so for us at Roma GIS, you can find us at romogis.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and uh, Instagram as well. And those, those same handles, Romo underscore GIS, I believe is on Twitter. And, um, you know, but our website, we just launched a new website. Really happy about that. Being able to put out some of the projects that we work on and some of the organizations like the Detroit People's Platform that we work with. And what we really try to do is work with any organization, mission-driven organization, nonprofit organization, educational organization that is trying to advance uh, themselves, advance the community good. And we're here to step in just like Theo, like, you know, he said, if you, if you want to get in the game and you want to make some moves, like we're here to support you. And that's just very much the organizing kind of the organizer in us, right? We're just like, Hey, we're ready. We're ready to go. We need more people. Always. We need more people who care and want to spread the love and spread the support. That's what's going to make our, our world better. That's going to make our community better. That's going to make our neighborhood better. And so you can follow us there. And if you have any questions or want any support on any geospatial technologies, any data, uh, warehousing, big data work, a lot of organizations are trying to wrestle with data, trying to get ready as we move back and forth between this technology space, this web space where we have, you know, telecommuting and lots of Zoom meetings and lots of more uh, technical infrastructure. Uh, what I found is that some of those organizations who do some of this great work, like the Detroit People's Platform, as 2020 happened, you know, some of those organizations were more hands-on, like Theo said, more in the streets, but then as 2020 occurred, needed to adapt and be more adapted to the, the technical changes that were occurring. And so I see a lot of organizations in that space. And my goal is to try to help as many of those organizations as I can to in, enhance their their technical capacity, both um, at the organizational structure, but also on the individual level, so that folks like Theo, who already understand 
how to make an impact can make a tenfold impact by just teaching them a few more tools and showing them a few of the ropes. So if you have any questions or, or want to work with Romo GIS, you can find us at romogis.com. I appreciate y'all in, in so many ways. I mean, part of it being, um, you know, I'm from Detroit. I'm from the West side, you know, Puritan and Greenfield, Finkel and Greenfield, oh. depending on how I feel that particular day, but just, you know, being able to say that there's people who are doing the work, right? Like who are actually rolling up their sleeves, working side by side with community, assisting them and giving them the resources so they can combat some of these, these ills of society. Like, I, I love the way you framed it earlier around, you know, these tools were used to create these systems. So we need the same tools to, to dismantle them. And so really digging into that and, and leaning into it, I feel like you all are, are the perfect people for this work, right? Like just being able to say, bridging the academic side, bridging like, I'm from these streets, I understand it. Bridging like all of those things, like that. that's that's where it's at. I'm just grateful for y'all and the work that you're doing. Yeah, I, I would just like to say, I'm always, I'm always very, very happy uh, to, to run into like-minded brothers and sisters too, who, who have kind of, you, you you know went down the same path as me had some of the same experiences have the same type of you know ideas about the way in which the world is working and committed to ideas of social justice um i would like to say the world is full of them uh but uh it's a lot um and i'm still trying to find my my, my, my brothers uh in the fight but i'm always you know, delighted, right, to, to run into my family members, brothers like you, James, and, and brothers like Frank. So I appreciate you too. Thank you for having us, James. I mean, this is really, it, again, it's a real great opportunity. And like you said, I felt like this was a whole class, man. We, we, that was, this was great. <laughs> this was awesome. Now, this is going to end up on somebody's syllabus. Just give me some time. <laughs> <laughs> this was like, so I've never considered this before, but I, I want to dedicate this episode to two people. Um, I know in the last episode, I, I said that Christopher Scott needed to hear it. Didn't necessarily dedicate it to him. That's still my guy. But I want to dedicate this episode to Jermaine Ruffin and to Dante Ferry. Now, both of these are, are good brothers, uh, frat brothers of mine, who for Jermaine, he's the person who introduced me to Frank um, indirectly. And we kicked it off that way. He also introduced me to Deep Powell, who you heard on a few episodes back where we were talking about urban planning. But really, when I think about the, the origin of Equity Matters podcast, a lot of it stems back to a conversation that we had a long time ago at a Cracker Barrel. And just the space and the support that he's given me to take this and run with it, build it into my own thing. I, I'm just grateful. And the, the second... Uh, brother Ferry, who was probably one of the first people I had ever met who was interested and engaged in GIS mapping and just the ways that you can transform uh, maps into data. I, I had never seen anything like that. And so he was ahead of his time. I remember he had a drone and he was able to map certain things out. And I know he's still doing great work. So just shout out to y'all. This episode is for Brother Ruffin and Brother Ferry. Appreciate y'all, good brothers, for, for supporting me. And also just want to thank um, Theo and Frank for getting on here and, and giving us a free master's class. I, 
when we talk about power and we talk about community, you, you can't you can't ignore one, right? You you can't have one without the other, especially if you're trying to accomplish anything, right? Whether you're a builder, whether you're a social worker, whether you're doing public health, wherever you position yourself, you're gonna need community and you're gonna have to understand the power dynamics because they exist. And if you try to go in there ignoring them, it's gonna just be even more glaring. Right now, I'm actually wrapping up a. Uh, a writing piece is going to be in my first book, y'all. Um, and the subject is around community engagement. And we talk about community power and how it can't go understated. And so I'm, I'm partnering with uh, Dr. Jody Cunningham, who you've heard also on this podcast. I think that was just another seat at the table or not just another seat at the table. And... Man, the podcast has just brought me to some really special places. We're on episode 60. I'm trying not to get emotional because I, I still know that in my heart of hearts, I'm trying to wind this thing down. And it's just been been a blessing to see the places that this thing has gone. When I pull up the map and I see the people listening to this podcast and people across the, the, the nation, it's crazy. I've got listeners in Germany, and it's crazy because I, I can speak German. That's a fun fun fact about me. Um, it's just, it's, it's amazing, right? Like all these people who are united in this goal of achieving equity and advancing equity in their various spaces, because they, they see that it's not just a, a health thing. It's not just a transportation thing. Like equity can be achieved regardless of whatever space you're in. Now, let's get to some other stuff. I want to make sure I process some things that have been going on in my, my own space. At the end of the last episode, I talked about Roe v. Wade. And on today's episode, we, we have to pause and talk about what happened in Buffalo just for a moment. I, I really tried to, to separate myself from it for, for a bit. And part of that was to protect myself and it was to protect my energy, to protect my thoughts. And I encourage other people to do that as well. But now that I've had time to process and I think about what I claim to do as a policy person, as someone who's committed to addressing the social determinants of health, you know me, I work for the state health department, I work for healthy housing, I work to ensure that people have access to safe and stable housing. The grocery store, the place in which people go to get food, a natural, essential element of one's daily living. When we talk about access to healthy fruits and vegetables, it comes up all the time in social determinants work. How can we make sure that people have access to healthy foods? And I think about this community who, as I've done my own research, have fought to get a grocery store in their community. And this was one of few that filled a gap that was necessary so that they could have food to put on their tables. And for an individual to open fire in the location in which people were getting fresh food for their homes. 
And if we don't talk about it as practitioners, as policymakers, as decision makers, we're doing a disservice. The same reason why we talk about racism being a public health crisis as we're talking about the social determinants and we don't acknowledge racism and we don't acknowledge white supremacy and their impacts on the social determinants, we're doing a disservice. We have to consider the totality of these things and the interconnectedness of these things because for an individual to open fire in a grocery store where people are getting fresh fruit and vegetables for their families that they otherwise would not have access to, that impacts their health. The relationship between racism and health has been beat to the ground. The declaration of racism as a public health crisis has been beat to the ground. What are we going to do about it? How are we going to start holding people accountable? How are we going to transform systems to ensure these things don't happen? And the words of one of my mentors, how are we going to change the hearts and minds of others? I think Kim Young said it best, you know, racism, white supremacy, that's a white people problem. Yep. And I'll leave it at that. It's, it's beyond recognition. There's no place for me in that discussion. I'm merely trying to survive and to live. And racism and white supremacy is unhappy every day that I continue to do so. So ponder on those questions a bit. That might be worth your, your interest. As we prepare to wrap up episode 60, we're heading into the last six months of the Equity Matters podcast. I got to keep saying it, otherwise I'm going to keep going. And we've got some really great topics coming up. So be on the lookout for those. Join our listserv. That's the best way to stay informed. Follow us on social media. That's at Equity Matters Podcast on Instagram and at Equity Matters PC on Twitter. Um, hit the socials. It's it's another way to stay informed. I, I really like the content that we've put out for this week's episode around community organizers and organizers that you should know, highlighting some names that you don't typically hear of and really being able to amplify the work that they've done and the importance of the, the activism that they've been a part of. But I think as we go forward, I want you to just continue to, to challenge yourself, to think a little deeper, to think a little broader, to see the relationships between those isms and the problems that we're looking to address, these outcomes that we continue to see, because it's, it's not by accident. Inequity is never by accident. And that's why intentionality <laughs> is the secret to equity. But I'll save that for a masterclass somewhere else. Until next time, folks, mask up because the pandemic's not over. I was just reading in the paper about how a few different counties in Michigan have uh, reached high transmission status. So mask up, vax up, do what you have to to stay safe. Check us out on your major platforms at Spotify, iTunes, uh, I think I, I heard us on Pandora the other day, too. So that's kind of lit. And, you know, share the episode with a friend. I know this was a longer one, but I think we covered a lot of important stuff. 
So until next time, folks, you know where to find us. You know what we stand for. 